Let's go ahead and uh, grab our Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 4, continuing our study through the book of Romans, looking at verses 1 through 16 here this morning. Romans chapter 4, the title of this morning's message is Sola Fide, or faith alone, or perhaps when justification started. When justification started. So Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to read through these 16 verses together. We're going to do something a little bit different. When we get to the end of verse 16, and I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I want you to respond, amen. Okay, so this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Just like that. So we'll get to the end of it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Don't forget. I might forget to say this is the word of the Lord. So if I just stand here and look silly, just say amen. Okay. All right. So Romans chapter, amen. Romans chapter four, verses one through 16. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal, the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of, of, of the law, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Man, you guys did such a good job. Exciting. Might be that worship song at the end just kind of kept you guys still going, right? Well, we've been going through this last summer. Rory's been taking us through the book of Romans um, over the last two weeks have been in Romans chapter 3, and if you haven't been able to, uh, to hear that message, you were absent for whatever reason, maybe you're on vacation, traveling, whatever it may be, I want to encourage you to go back to our YouTube channel and, and, and listen to those two studies in Romans chapter 3. 
Uh, you can even go to our website, calvarychapelprimeville.com, and you can pull up the studies there as well. That will give you a really good footing for what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Last week, Rory said something. He said that we're beginning to navigate our way through some of the most deepest and most profound channels of biblical doctrine found in the Bible. This is deep stuff, right? And so we're going to kind of pull up our boots. We're going to walk through this stuff over the next eight chapters, really. It's going to be profound, deep biblical doctrine. This is tough stuff, right? And one of the things we learned last week in chapter three is that Paul made this great argument that we are not saved by pedigree or ancestry or lineage or tradition. We're not saved by works or by the law. No, we are justified by faith in Christ alone. A faith that excludes boasting, a faith that upholds the law. When Paul said that, the Jews, uh, sorry, the Jewish Christians in Rome would have immediately asked this question. How does this doctrine of justification by faith relate to our history? Paul, you say that this doctrine is witnessed by the law and the prophets, but what about, what about Abraham? And Paul's response is genius. In his defense of his thesis in chapter 3, verses 27 and 31, that righteousness is by faith alone apart from works, and that all people receive righteousness in the same way, Paul calls to the witness stand two individuals, Abraham and David. Abraham, the father of the Jews, and David, the greatest king the Jews have ever known. And he uses these two men as examples to oppose the nationalistic works-based righteousness of the Jews, saying that both Abraham and David, the patriarchs of faith and identity, both agree that all of humanity is made righteous, not by works, but by faith in God. And so beginning through This from uh, chapter four all the way through chapter eight, Paul explains how God's great plan of salvation is completely harmonious with the Old Testament scriptures. And I say all of that just to give us a footing and a foundation as we jump into our surveyed section this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and we thank you for your word. It is, it is deep, it is rich, it is powerful. Lord, it is the source of life. It directs our path. It informs, it defines, and it directs us each step, each decision, each choice. Each life in this room is informed, defined, and directed by your word through the work of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that this morning. And Lord, as we get into these deep and profound doctrines of justification by faith, We ask, Lord God, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the reality of its truth. Lord, not that we would just understand it intellectually, but Lord, that we would embrace it personally, individually, and that it would produce within us the fruit of faith. Lord, I'm very aware of your word that tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, that we are to study to show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Lord, with that in mind, I pray that you would overlook my inadequacies as a pastor, as a teacher, 
And Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts that would be supernatural. We call upon you, Lord, to meet us in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 4 is an incredible chapter where Paul is trying to defend his thesis that we're saved by grace through faith alone, um, apart from works, and that every single human being is saved um, in the same exact way. I was hoping to get through all 25 verses of chapter (laughs) 4, but I think it would do it an injustice to try and do that. So we're just going to go through the first 16 verses, and these first 16 verses can be broken up into three sections, verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 12, and verses 13 uh, through 16. The first section that he brings Abraham as his witness, and he says that he is justified by faith apart from works. In the second section, verses 9 through 12, that he's justified by faith apart from the law. And then the last section, verses 13 through 16, he's justified by faith before the law was ever given. That's his argument here in chapter 4. So let's look at the first part, that Abraham is justified by faith apart from works. Look at verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the faith? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Incredible statement, right? That's something we should be asking ourselves all the time. When we're faced with things that are going on in the world, when the world is asking us questions, when we're trying to make decisions and choices about life, what does the scripture say? Great question to ask ourselves, right? And so he says, what does the scripture say? He says this, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Now that verse, verse three, is kind of the, the anchor that Paul uses to build every single one of his arguments here in chapter four. Every section, one through eight, nine through 12, 13 through 16, 17 through 25, every single one, he goes back to this verse verse 3. He's pulling it from uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, all the way back, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 15, verse 6. And he begins to examine the experience of Abraham as the foundation for his argument. And to give us a little bit of background, in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham has just defeated the kings that have come in and they've taken Lot, his nephew, captive. He's gone, he's defeated them, he's rescued Lot, he's brought them back. Now he's sitting and he's waiting, expecting possibly that these kings might come up against him again. And all of a sudden, in verse 15, or sorry, chapter 15, God appears to him and assures him that he will be Abraham's shield and his exceeding great reward. Can you imagine hearing that from God? In a troubling time that God comes to you and says, hey, rest assured, I want you to know this, I'm for you. I will be your shield and I will be your exceeding great reward. But the thing that Abraham wanted most, he wanted a son. He wanted an heir, right? And God promised to give him a son, but as yet, years have gone by and nothing has transpired. That has not been fulfilled. God, knowing what's in Abraham's heart, 
comes to him in chapter 15, verse 5, and says, Abraham, I know, I know the grief that you feel. I know what's, what's burdening your heart. I know that weight that's there. Hey, look up. Look up. Do you see those stars? Can you count them? That's how many descendants I'm going to give you. Not just one son, but you are going to be the father of nations, Abraham. And verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15 tells us that at that point, Abraham believed God. He believed God. God promised and Abraham believed. Now the Hebrew word translated believed there in Genesis 15, 6 means to say amen. Like my sister over here keeps saying amen. That's what, that's what it means. Amen means I believe, I trust, right? Abraham amened God. God said, I'm going to make your descendants like, like the stars of heaven. And Abraham said, amen, amen. Let it be so, right? Not, and that was not just some recognition of an event or a fact. It was saving faith. And what is saving faith? It is trusting in God as being able to aid either in obtaining or in doing something. It is a firm belief in the reliability and the ability in the truth and the strength of God to fulfill his promises. In the New Testament, it is used of the conviction and the trust in which a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative, the law of the soul. God gave a promise, and Abraham responded, amen. Douglas Moo says this, Paul singles out Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, as the key to understanding the Abraham narrative, thereby focusing attention on the initiative of God. That's really important for us to understand. Salvation has nothing to do with us. Can I get an amen? Amen. It has nothing to do with us. It is God initiating a work to save a human being. Not because of who we are, not because of our our race or where we're born or our gender or any of that. Simply because God is good. That's why. Not because we're good. The Bible actually tells us there's no one who's good. No, not one. We just saw that last week, right? Verse 12 of chapter 3. And so Douglas Moo again, he says, Paul focuses in, he zeroes in on Genesis 15, 16 as a key to understand the Abraham narrative, thereby focusing attention on the initiative of God who makes and guarantees his promise and on faith as the means of experiencing the blessings promised by God. In other words, it was this faith, this amen that Abraham gave that was accounted to him for righteousness. And the word accounted in Romans chapter four, verse three, is a Greek word, logitsomai. Logitsomai. It's a accounting term, it's a banking term. It's used 11 times in this chapter. We see it as accounted, as counted, as credited, as imputed, as reckoned. And it means to put to one's account or literally to deposit to one's account. And there are two ways that money can be credited to one's account, namely as wages earned and as a free gift. And Paul uses a very interesting illustration here in verse 4 to explain how one is truly justified before God. Look what he says. Now to him who works, 
the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. For righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is this. If a man does a job and he works, he earns a salary, and this money is then deposited or credited to his account. And if that's the case, then he has every right to boast about what he's accomplished, what he has done. But Abraham did not work for his salvation. He simply amended God. He simply trusted God's word. He believed God. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, in the context of justification to those who do not work and therefore have no right to payment, but who instead put their trust in God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. That is, they are given righteousness as a free and unearned gift of grace by faith. In other words, God's crediting faith as righteousness is not because of something that we have earned, something that we have worked for, but it's a free and unmerited decision of divine grace. It was Jesus' work on the cross. He did that work. He finished that work. And his righteousness was then imputed or reckoned or deposited to Abraham's account. And so saying, and so doing, Douglas Moo says, Abraham thus rested from the Jews. Uh, Abraham as an exemplar of the Torah obedience, and he made him into an example of faith. And then in Romans 4, 5, he doubles down. And look what he says here. He doubles down in this idea of justification by faith. And he says, he has the audacity to say that God justifies the ungodly. Look what he says. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that's you, that's me, his faith is counted for righteousness. Wow, talk about blowing up the room. The law said this in Exodus chapter 23, verse 7, God himself says, I will not justify the wicked. God says, I won't justify the wicked. And later on in Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, he gives charge to those who will lead his people, and he tells them this, justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he literally prays, God, condemn the wicked and justify the righteous. And here in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul emphatically says that God justifies the ungodly. How is this possible? Last week, we learned that there is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 10. And just a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the presence of a just and holy God, there is none who is good. There is none who is righteous. How is it that God can then justify the ungodly? There is no godly person to justify, according to the word of God, right? That that creates a major problem for humanity. So what does God do? He takes it upon himself to make a way. And he put 
our sins on Christ's account that he might put Christ's righteousness on our account. Think of it this way. Think of a bank account. All of us have those, and some of us, some of our bank accounts are dwindling quickly. We have older kids, right? <laughs> they are super expensive, right? And so it seems like we're, we're cutting checks all the time for our kids. I thought maybe when my kids become adults, it would be less. No, it seems to be a little bit more, right? And so anyways, we have accounts. Think of it, a bank account, but think of your bank account being full to the rafters with sin, Okay? And there's no way for us to pay off that debt. It just keeps accruing and accruing and accruing. And Jesus looks at us, God looks at us and goes, you are helpless. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. So I'm going to do something instead. I'm going to drain your account. And I'm going to take that sin and I'm going to put it in the account of my son, Jesus. He's going to bear that sin upon himself. And I'm going to take his righteousness, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to deposit it into your account. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God taking away our sin, draining our account, and putting, depositing the righteousness of Christ filling it to the rafters. That's what's known as this great exchange. John Stott says this, if anything is clear in the antithesis between verses four and five, it is that the crediting of faith as righteousness is a free gift, not an earned wage. That it happens not to those who work, but to those who trust, and indeed who trust the God who far from justifying people because they are godly, actually justifies them when they are ungodly. What did Jesus say about being the good physician? A good physician doesn't come to heal the, the, the healthy. He comes to heal the what? The sick. Last week, Rory made this comment from John Stott that he spoke of this great exchange as the just justifying the unjust or the righteous, righteousing the unrighteous. And in verses six through eight, Paul describes this exchange. Notice what he says, just as David describes, or literally David agrees is what he's saying. David absolutely agrees with this hypothesis, this theory, this thesis I'm putting out. The blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Paul uses David as a witness. In fact, he quotes from David's own confessions in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2, regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And David, in this section, makes three amazing statements. We read them here in verses 7 and 8. That first, God forgives sin. In other words, he imputes to us faith as righteousness. Secondly, he imputes righteousness apart from works. And thirdly, God does not impute our sins. Three times David refers to evil deeds, once as lawlessness and twice as sins. Why is that? Because for sin is both the stepping over a known boundary, lawlessness, stepping over a known boundary, and then it's also 
the falling short of a known standard or missing the mark, as we talked about last week. And three times he tells us what God does with that when we step over the boundary, when we fall short of the standard. He tells us that our lawless deeds are forgiven. That's what God does. He forgives our lawless deeds. He covers our sin. And lastly, the Lord will never count our sin against us. Think about the reality, just the amazing truth, the impact of that reality. Not, yeah, forgiven, praise the Lord. Covering our sin, praise the Lord. But this one, he will never count our sin against us. Remember that analogy of draining our account of sin and pouring into it the righteousness of God, filling it to the rafters? It's so full that sin can't be deposited into that account any longer. That's what David is saying here. That's what Paul is quoting from David's words. Instead of putting our sins into our account against us, God pardons and God covers them. In other words, once we are justified, not by anything that we have done, not by works that we have accomplished, but simply and totally by faith, our record contains Christ's perfect righteousness to its fullness. To its fullness, brothers and sisters. And sin can never again be deposited to that account. Think about that. God, the righteous judge, exchanges our sin for Christ's righteousness. Now, do we still sin? Amen. Yeah, we do. We do, right? We sin all the time, right? We are saints who sin. That's the reality of it. Now, justification means that our past sins are taken care of. Glorification, being in the presence of God, means that the presence of sin is finally done with. Sanctification is this process that as we walk through life between the now and not yet, right? That's called sanctification, and God is dealing with the practice of sin in our lives, okay? So we do sin, and when we do sin, that needs to be forgiven, that needs to be dealt with because it affects our fellowship with God. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn over to First John chapter 1, First John chapter 1, verses 1. 5 through 9, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if we say that we're walking with the Lord, that we have fellowship with him, but we're still practicing sin in our lives, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, verse eight, and the truth is not in us. But verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness righteousness. Amen? Amen? Amen. And here's the amazing thing. These sins that we commit as believers, these sins are not held against us. Look at verse 8 again. The Lord shall not impute sin. Blessed is the man who receives that benefit, that God doesn't keep a record of our sin. This is the mystery and the miracle and the blessing of divine grace. 
Timothy Keller says this, being in a state of credited righteousness means that your sin is not counted against you. Though you are sinning, it cannot condemn you. It does not affect your status before God. Man, what a blessing. What a a miracle. What a magnificent truth and reality that you and I get to walk in every single day of our lives. Now, Paul would ask the question, well, shall we just continue to sin that God's grace may abound all the more? Certainly not. That was, that's ridiculous, right? We rejoice in his love. We rejoice in his mercy. We rejoice in his grace, right? You don't have to change to receive his grace, but guess what? His grace changes you, right? And all of a sudden you find yourself not wanting to do those old things anymore, but wanting to live a life that's well-pleasing to him. Amen? Amen. It reminds me of Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, as we're going through the mic check, is that passage I read to you. Micah recognizes just just the, the compassionate mercy of God. And he literally says, Woe, or who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. And then he says in verse 19, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I love what Corey Tinboom says. I know I've shared it with you guys before, but Corey Tinboom says, and then God plants a no fishing sign on it. <laughs> Why? So that we can't dredge it up again. We can't go out there and start trolling and boom, there it is again. He puts a no fishing. We, we're not able to go and do it. He chooses to not remember our sin as the scriptures put it. I love what it says again. These three beautiful realities Our lawless deeds are forgiven. Our sins are covered that the Lord will never count our sin against us. So David calls Abraham and David, or sorry, Paul calls Abraham and calls David as witnesses to be examples, but they're actually more than examples. Their faith in God sets the pattern for the way that God will deal with his people. How he deals with his people. And so verses one through eight Abraham is justified by faith apart from works. In verses 9 through 16, he's justified by grace apart from the law. Look what it says here in in chapter 4 again, in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse, uh, verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcision only or upon uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a sign of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are the circumcised, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. A lot of circumcision happening right here in this section, (laughs) right? 12 times he brings that up in four verses. Apparently he had a point to make, right? And so I'm gonna cut it real short, right? We'll get right through this real fast. 
We'll get through this as fast as we possibly can. All right? It's a little awkward, a little strange. Um, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. I apologize. <laughs> Well, this one's a little cleaner. A, a, a priest, a rabbi, and a mom are discussing whose religion most easily creates new converts. And after two days of heated discussion, they finally decide that the first person to convert a bear to their faith in 24 hours wins the argument. Okay? So the priest and the imam, they, they come back first, and the priest proclaims, I've done it, I've had a conversation with a bear, and he has agreed he's coming to Mass next Sunday. And the imam says, well, I, I did one better. I too had a conversation with a bear and he's agreed to come to the mosque tomorrow and begin learning about his new faith. And a few minutes later, here comes the rabbi. He walks in the door, his, his hair is disheveled, his clothes are a mess, he's dirty, he's ripped and torn, he's bleeding all over the place. And they go, man, what happened to you? He's like, well, I shouldn't have started with circumcision. <laughs> Come on, a little bit on this side, a little more on this side. <laughs> well, for the Jews, circumcision was very, very important, right? In order to become a Jew, they believed you had to go through the rite of circumcision. If a Jew was to become righteous before God, he had to be circumcised, he had to obey the law. Paul has already told us in Romans chapter 2, sorry, <laughs> verses 12 through 29, that there must be an inward obedience to the law, right? Not an outward expression, but this inward obedience, not a cutting away of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart, he tells us in Romans chapter 2. Mere external observances can never save the lost sinner. And he tells us here in verses 11 and 12 that Abraham was declared righteous before God before he was circumcised. In fact, Abraham was circumcised when he was 99 years old. Fellas, let that sink in for a second. 99 years... Caleb, smile. There you go. <laughs> 99 years old, right? When he was circumcised. That was 14 years after Genesis chapter 15, when God gave him the promise in Genesis 15, 6, where it says that he believed God and it was counted to him toward, as righteousness. The conclusion is obvious. Circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's justification. So why was circumcision given? We're told in verses 11 and 12, it was given as a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. As a sign, it was identification, evidence that Abraham belonged to God and that he believed God's promise. As a seal, it was authentication, a reminder to him that God had given the promise and would keep it. Now today, do we have that same seal and sign? No, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that we are sealed, that believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as the guarantee of our inheritance. And the point is this, circumcision did not add to Abraham's salvation, it merely verified it. Thomas Schreiner says this, Paul suggests that if Abraham was righteous by faith, then circumcision is in inconsequential. Covenant grace doesn't depend on circumcision. Faith alone 
is the path to blessing. And so he's told us this, that Abraham was justified by faith apart from the the apart from works, verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 12, he's justified by faith apart from the law. And now in verses 13 through 16, he tells us that he's justified by faith before the law was even given. It says in verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The key word here is the word promise. Abraham was justified by believing God's promise, not by obeying the law. In fact, the law wasn't even given until 500 years later when God gave it to Moses. So the promise to Abraham was given purely through God's grace. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't merit it through keeping the law. And Robert Munt says this, what role would there be for faith if it were contingent on obedience to law? This follows from the fact that law is unable to produce promise. Its fundamental reason for being is to bring about wrath. And Paul's point for us today is this. God justifies the ungodly, that's me and that's you, because we believe his gracious promise. Not because we obey the law, not because we're good people. Again, verse 12 of chapter 3, there is none good, no, not one. Why was the law given? The law was given not to save men, but to show men, to reveal to them their desperate need to be saved, right? Galatians chapter 3, verse 12 tells us the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So this is picture of a, a, a teacher standing over the, the top of her student and letting her know like, hey, here's the reality. This is the law. You can't keep it. Whenever you try to keep it, you'll break it. If you break one of these rules, you break the whole thing. And you've offended God. It is impossible for you to keep it. Therefore, you need to be saved. And so the law's purpose is to show the reality of our desperate need to be saved. And it brings us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. God's law makes demands which we transgress And so in verse 15, it says that we incur his wrath, but God's grace makes promises which we believe so that we receive blessing, verses 14 and 16. The fixed point is this, that God is gracious and that salvation originates in his sheer grace alone. But in order for that to be so, our human response can only be amen, faith. John Stott says this, faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive what grace offers. Faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive what grace offers. Paul's ultimate conclusion at the end of this is that Abraham was justified by grace alone and that's the reason why everyone else can also be saved. Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure, might be a guarantee 
to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul saw in saw Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, where God says that you will be a father of nations fulfilled when Jesus Christ went to the cross. Only the gospel of grace and faith can unite. Only the gospel of grace and faith can open the door for Gentiles and level the ground before the cross. The life of faith is not a perfect life. It is the life which clings onto what God has said that he will do and which sees struggles and joys and failures as a means to increase our attachment to God who makes and keeps his promises. Abraham's faith was in a promise of a descendant. Our faith is in what God says one of his descendants has already achieved. Amen? This is the promise which defines our reality and shapes our lives. Don't go anywhere. We're going to start right now. Worship team, come on up. Seriously, let's go. Come on up. Go ahead and put your Bibles aside and uh, we're just going to, let's go ahead and stand together and we'll pray as Rory's in there probably eating donuts, testing them out right now, (laughs) making sure, oh, sorry. I I do see a little bit of donut right there in the corner. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Lord, I'm so thankful that my salvation isn't dependent upon me or else I never would make it. I'd never get there, Lord. Just like this song talks about my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I leave the God I love. Take this heart and and seal it for thy courts above. Lord, I was just pondering the question this week about if I were to stand before the gates of heaven and they were to ask me, why should I let you in? I had three answers. My first was, well, I, I'm a good person. And immediately you just said, well, that's a works-based faith. And then I corrected myself and I said, well, I believe in, in Jesus and, and I try to live a good life. And you said to me, That's faith plus works. And then I finally said, well, I I have faith in Christ. I trust Jesus. And even then, Lord, you revealed to me that I trust in my own trust. I have faith in my own faith. Where their true reality is, Lord, you have promised and we, say, and we say amen. And perhaps that's some of you guys here this morning as we're sitting here, as we're just coming to a close. And if you were asked that question, which of those three answers would you give? You're a good person? We've already studied and we recognize that there's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, none who seeks after God. We can't get to heaven based upon what we can do or what we have done. 
That's not how we're justified, made righteous before God. Or perhaps it's the second answer that I trust in Jesus and I live a good life. I think probably most of us fall into that category. But that's faith plus works, and that doesn't work either. Or maybe we trust in our own trust. Instead of just receiving the blessings that faith brings as we trust in the person who's made the promise. It's just Jesus. It goes back to that Sunday school answer to every question. The answer is Jesus. That's it. And if that's you this morning, I just want to ask and pray that you would just search your own heart as we come to this song, which is such a a fitting song to end on, and allow the Lord to search our hearts and reveal to us what or who we're truly trusting in. If it's anything other than Him, than His promise, than His Son, and the person and finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross then ask the Lord to reveal that to us that he might receive all of the glory for it's in his name that we pray in Jesus name Amen